Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm Director of ECFR, and this episode is part of our World in 30 Minutes mini-series on the end of the world. This is the place where we talk about how the global order, which has defined the world for the last few decades, is gradually crumbling, falling apart, being challenged, bursting at the seams, or maybe even being reinvented as something else. So this week, we're going to look at a very particular and fascinating threat to the liberal order, that which comes from big data and algorithms. And to talk to our special guest, I'm joined by Ulrike Franke, who's a policy fellow at ECFR. He's been working a lot on technology and security issues. And our guest is Cathy O'Neill, who is a data scientist and mathematician with a PhD in mathematics from Harvard University. She is also the founder of an algorithmic auditing firm called Orca. And many people will have read her most recent book, Weapons of Math Destruction, How Big Data Increases Inequality and Threatens Democracy, which is a New York Times bestseller. So, Kathy, do you want to maybe just start with a very general question? How do you see big data and algorithms threatening liberal democracy? Sure. Um, And I think the answer is in two sort of different ways. Um, The first one is a pretty direct threat. Now that we have just enormous amounts of data and profiling data on sort of every voter in the United States um, and pretty minute information about their consumer habits and their and whether they vote and things like that. Um, political campaigns can use these profiles to, um, you know, they f- first have focus groups and then they try out different tactics on them. And what what ends up happening is they have Facebook, which we all know about, is the perfect platform to send tailored messages to different kinds of people with different messages from the political campaigns. Um, and I should add that. Not only is there a problem of asymmetry of information in that, like the campaigns know much more about the voters than the voters know about the campaigns in large part, uh, but there's also this problem that the ads that they're being sent aren't necessarily informational. In fact, they're more and more uh, like an emotional manipulation, which of course isn't new in the world of politics. Um, there have always been attack ads, for example, but historically attack ads haven't been only shown to one person at a time. So like attack ads are broadcast on television or something and lots of people get to see it. So in particular, if there's actually false information, it can be discovered. Um, or for that matter, you know, historically journalists have sort of followed the campaign bus around the country and taken note if politicians really say different things to different people. But it's impossible now for a journalist to actually follow a politician around Facebook because when a journalist goes to their Facebook page, they only see the ads that the politician has shown to them. So the long story short is I feel like the increasing attention to uh, Facebook political ads, and there's just more and more money pouring into it, billions and billions of dollars um, each cycle, is a direct threat to democracy in that we are divided into little marketing segments, if you will. We are sent different information about the different candidates, and there's more and more a sort of lack of common uh, reality between the different sides. Um, And we've seen lots of consequences of this. Um, So that's the sort of first 
direct threat to democracy. The second threat is a sort of harder to define um, threat, but I think it's just as important, which is that many of the algorithms that I, pr- practically all of the algorithms I, uh, I outline in my book do what all algorithms do, which is they divide people into the the fortunate and the unfortunate. They sort people into the winners and losers. Um, and the winners are people like me, the data scientists who build this engine in the first place, educated, white, uh, living in New York City with extra pocket money. Um, and we are, you know, in general and largely served by these machines that we're building, these algorithms that um, sort people into winners and losers. We're given more options. We're given... Um, you know, exactly the kinds of products that we want to buy. We are treated very well as consumers. The other half of the population is not. Um, And moreover, the kind of algorithms that are being used nowadays aren't just for consumption. They are whether people get jobs, whether they get into the college that they want to go to, how much do they pay for insurance, what kind of credit card uh, offer do they get, how long do they go to prison. And again, if you're talking about things that are sorting winners into losers, not necessarily, by the way, because of past behavior, but largely because of profiling, because of demographics, because of where you were born, what kind of uh, music do you like, stuff that you can pick up through browsing information. So what we're seeing is like a very large sort of, if you, an accumulative effect of keeping people who were born in the wrong neighborhood from ever leaving that neighborhood. Um, and then they end up with bad educations, bad jobs. Um, and, and I was, one of the algorithms I t- talked about in my book are this, the work scheduling algorithms, which actually treat employees, especially at large chains like Walmart, treat employees like interchangeable cogs in a machine. And so they don't even have, they don't even know their schedule a week in advance. They might even have to call on a given morning to find out whether they're working. This prevents people from um, getting a second job. It prevents people from having regular babysitting. It prevents them from having a normal life. And I would argue that if you think about the accumulative effect of all this sort of doubling down on the unlucky to make them even more unlucky prevents those people from being fully engaged uh, in democracy itself, simply because they are so stressed, closing Starbucks one night, waking up at five in the morning to open it the next morning, that they simply don't have the mental space to, and possibly not even the time to go vote but the mental space itself. So I think that's a, se- a second element of the threat of democracy, which really uh, what I'm saying is it's the algorithmic side of inequality itself. And I'd say my argument is that if you have a very, very unequal system where the, the people on the lower end do not have space to be civically engaged, then that's a threat to democracy. So to what extent is what you describe intentional? Because um, I remember while reading your book, you seem to be describing a lot of things that just kind of happen because the data is biased? So is it, is it more that the data we're using um, is biased because we are biased? Or is what you're describing more an intentional uh, way of doing things? And as you say, intentionally splitting people into winners and losers? So I, on the one hand, it is intentional. But on the other hand, it is not at all, um, I don't think, mean, spirited. So I mean, I think credit card companies simply want to make as much money as possible. Um, and they will use whatever data shows them to do so. Um, and you know, insurance companies want to avoid risk. So they do this. The problem is that just because it's efficient or just because of it's profitable doesn't mean it's actually fair. Um, so what we've done is we've optimized to profit 
for the most part, rather than optimizing to fairness, which is to say, like, like the stakeholders who are deciding on what the definition of success for these algorithms are, are mostly corporate or commercial stakeholders, and they are not the public itself. So can you tell us a bit more for people who are not experts, what these algorithms are? I mean, where, where are they used? How do they work? I mean, you know, the people, I think some people, I think most people know that Amazon, for example, will target them in particular ways based on, on uh, who they are and what they've bought in the past. And Facebook uh, obviously has ways of deciding what appears in your, in your feed. But can you give us a sense of what the algorithms are and, and, and how they work? Well, that's a really hard question because I'll be honest with you. Algorithms are popping up literally everywhere. So uh, there's no really one flavor of algorithms. I, I'll say it this way. Algorithms are, being, are replacing human systems. Um, whenever there, there's decisions being made, lots of decisions being made automatically, that, that's an algorithm. So, of course, Facebook is a great example. Facebook is inherently algorithmic, right? The stuff you see on your Facebook wall is stuff that Facebook has decided will keep you at Facebook longer. That's, for them, the most profitable way of doing it um, because the longer you're on Facebook, the more you click on, on advertising, uh, which is how they make their money. It is not – so, in, a, in other words, it's optimized to fairness. Not partic- it's not particularly optimized to information, good information or something. Or something. But that's just one example. Like – most people don't even know about the algorithms that they're they're targeted by, um, and that could be online or it could be offline. When you send your resume to get a job, especially if it's a big employer, they likely have an algorithm that filters resumes. Sometimes you know about it, sometimes you don't. If it's just your resume that's being filtered, you won't know about it. But if it's um, a minimum wage job, like working at a grocery store like Kroger's Grocery in Atlanta, I profiled a young man who was forced to take a personality test in order to even get an interview, which he failed, by the way. And he he suspects that it's because he has mental health status, which is illegal under the Americans with Disability Act in the United States. So is actually like his father, who's a lawyer, is suing on behalf of everyone who ever took that test. So in his case, Kyle Beam is his name. Kyle knew that he was having a, taking a personality test, um, but it wasn't something he could opt out of. Um, a lot of people think that uh, we can we can address algorithms and algorithmic problems by you know protecting our privacy or opting out of things. But in the in the realm of trying to get a job, you actually will not get an interview unless you agree to do this, and you have to answer the questions you're asked. So. Those are just two examples, but every insurance company uses uh, algorithms, and they're increasingly big data algorithms, which is to say they increasingly use information picked up as kind of a a byproduct of your interactions with the world, like social media or consuming behavior or even just publicly available records. Um, So most of the algorithms that are happening to you are in the background, but anytime you think to yourself – oh, um, this company is going to save money if they don't have certain types of clients, then that company is very likely using an algorithm to avoid those types of clients. So your book is called Weapons of Math Destruction. Um, What makes an algorithm a weapon of math destruction? I mean, I assume even if the Amazon algorithm doesn't work perfectly, it's not not exactly a weapon of math destruction, is it? Oh, actually, no. I think of Amazon, um, at least the checkout, algorithm as probably one of the best algorithms out there in the sense of it just works wonderfully well and it's been truly optimized 
Um, and I talk about it in that sense that I wish some of these weapons of mass destructions were as optimized to feedback as Amazon is. Um, and I should make it clear that I am not anti-algorithm nor am I anti-big data. I am very worried about a certain class of algorithms, which I call weapons of math destruction, which have three properties. The first is that they are very important. They're scaled massively, and they affect people in important ways. So that's why I keep on referring to getting a, getting a job or going to college or being assessed at your job or insurance or, or credit cards. Those are very important decisions and politics, too. Um, Second thing is that they're secret, so we don't understand them. Even if we do understand that we're being scored, we still don't understand how the formula works. I mean, that happens a lot. I, I um, profiled a teacher who was fired from her job as a, as a fourth grade teacher in Washington, D.C., based in large part on an algorithm that she couldn't understand and could not appeal. So she knew it was there, but, she, but nobody could explain it to her. Um, and finally, my third characteristic is that they're destructive, which I mean by, by which I mean that they, they are unfair to people. So they're massive, they're important, they're secret, and yet they're unfair. And as an observation, I've noticed that when you have these three characteristics, it always comes with a fourth characteristic, which is that they create the sort of larger feedback loop on society that they, they're not just destructive for the individual, but they actually just, they're destructive for society as a whole. They actually kind of often undermine their original goal. So the original goal, for example, for the teacher who was fired, the original goal was to get rid of bad teachers. But the the model, the scoring system that they introduced to do this, to keep teachers accountable and get rid of bad teachers, was so statistically flawed that there's evidence that is getting rid of the best teachers instead of the worst teachers. So I don't I don't think that's a coincidence. I think that that's a that's a consequence of really poorly thought out secretive and destructive uh, algorithms and systems. So, I mean, the way that you're talking about it, you know, it's very um, Huxley-esque in a way that you're kind of describing these technologies which are designed to make the world a better place, which are kind of progressive, and then like a Frankenstein's monster, they end up taking on a life of their own. And in the in his forward to Brave New World, Huxley talks about science as a kind of Procrustean bed with humanity being kind of stretched to to um, uh, or shrunk, having limbs hacked off in order to, to kind of uh, fit it. Is that your kind of idea that this is science gone badly wrong? But... I mean, I'm a little bit less pessimistic about it because I don't think it's inherently necessary for this to be so bad. I do think what we've, we've the first phase of this very new industry has been an extreme amount of blind trust. And if you want to ask me how I feel about the science involved, I would say, hey, let's put the science into data science. I really feel like there's very little science here. What we're doing is we're throwing data at these powerful machine learning algorithms for the most part and then just trusting whatever they say. And we're, what we're not doing is thinking, interrogating these these systems that we've built and making sure that they're fair and legal. And I would like to see us be more scientific about it and say, show me the evidence. Show me how it deals with this case. Show me that it doesn't filter out qualified women or qualified African-Americans. Um, show me evidence. And that's what a real scientist does. But isn't part of the issue, going back to this whole question of liberalism, that, that um, you know, they can be incredibly effective, but, but with big data, what you, can, what you see are correlations. So 
you can be much more effective at predicting things from uh, the, the, the things are happening for particular reasons because of the correlations that are there but they don't necessarily tell you why there is a correlation yeah that's a really really important point so one of the thought experiments i like to do with people is imagine that fox news decides to automate its hiring process which is to say like build a machine learning algorithm and of course every machine learning algorithm is trained on data and the most relevant data is the historical data at fox news but if you think about what we know about the culture of fox news there will inevitably be a correlation between women being hired and women not being successful that is because women were forced out of fox news um they were harassed we know why, but that's not the point. The point is that there's a correlation between women being hired and women not being successful. So that means if we train an algorithm on historical data like that, it will learn that pattern. And if we then show it a new set of applicants, a new applicant pool to get who wants to get hired at Fox News Now, it will look at that applicant pool and it will downgrade the women. So that's a very important example. I hope it's understandable to you that illustrates why machine learning algorithms are not inherently fair. They just propagate past patterns and they sometimes exacerbate them because of this extra ingredient. When you have an algorithm, people trust it more. So people are less likely to interrogate their own practices because they think, oh, an algorithm is doing it, so we're all good. I mean, it does also show this tension between effectiveness and individual rights because, you know, if you got machine learning algorithm to profile potential terrorists, it's quite likely that there'd be quite a lot of uh, correlation between certain religions and ethnic groups and terrorist attacks in different places, um, which go completely against a lot of core constitutional principles in, in, uh, in a lot of liberal democracies. You know, there's an enormous political debate in the US right now exactly around this question of like, who do we call a terrorist? And who will President Trump acknowledge as a terrorist? And the fact that we don't even have domestic terrorism laws in the United States. And it points to a very, very deep, important point that most data scientists never get trained to think about whatsoever, never mind Silicon Valley venture capitalists, uh, which is that data itself is a social construct. We decide what data to collect. We decide what to name things. We decide who is a terrorist and who's just driving a car into a crowd. Um, and depending on how we've done that, that reflects our bias. And of course, we can't expect any algorithm derived from biased data collection or data description to give us um, an, an objective answer. It's going to give us what we give it. And how, uh, I mean, a lot of people who are listening to this have probably seen some films like Minority Report, for example, where, um, you know, you have a state that uses past patterns of, uh, behavior to predict crimes before they take place and and uh, I mean is that the sort of territory that your thinking goes into as well is that something that could actually happen as a result of algorithms and big data well on the one hand I would say that's already happening because we absolutely do have predictive policing where we uh, we have these algorithms that claim to say where the next crime is going to take place and I, I could go deep into why that's problematic. I think the easiest way of saying it is that it's more like a prediction of police police action than it is a prediction of crime itself. Most crimes never, never lead to arrest, um, especially drug crimes. But certain populations are much, much more likely to be arrested for drug crimes. So if we're looking for drug crimes, 
guess where we go? We go to the poor minority neighborhoods where we actually arrest people for drug crimes. Um, that doesn't mean there aren't other drug crimes being happening in the sort of richer and whiter neighborhoods. So, and, and that leads to my point, to the second point, which is the minority report wasn't dystopian enough in a certain sense. What minority report has that none of our algorithms currently have or ever will have is correctness, accuracy. Remember, like, until the very end where, like, Tom Cruise is set up for for murder where he didn't actually intend to murder anyone? Like, until that moment, the people in the tank, <laughs> I don't know what they were called, they were, they were predicting correctly. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. They were actually predicting murder uh, of people who were actually planning to murder. So there was, like, there's no, there was no sense of false positives or false negatives. In the real world, we have... An enormous problem that there are way too many false positives. We have way too many sort of alerts about possible crimes that are about to happen when no crime actually takes place, but still people get, you know, more and more surveilled because they're under suspicion. And then once somebody, once a population is much more surveilled than another population, then existing crimes will be much more likely to be picked up. And it, and it sort of creates the cycle of thinking of criminalizing a certain population, which I think everybody understands. The Anyway, long story short, Minority Report wasn't as bad as, as reality. I'd love to come to some of the things one can do to stop the more dystopian scenarios actually happening. But maybe before we um, get onto the, the what can be done section of the, of the discussion, we can go a bit deeper into the first danger which you talked about, which is this sort of atomization of society into echo chambers and where people can micro-target groups of, of single individuals and what the political implications of, of that are. I mean, a lot of people would say that there's nothing new about that. There are a lot of political parties in the UK, for example, where I'm sitting at the moment, there are political parties like the Liberal Democrats, for example, that would be Eurosceptic in, in the southwest of England, but pro-European in metropolitan areas and uh, release, um, you know, electoral materials, which were much more, which were quite targeted. And their model uh, of, of political campaigning was, was very localised. Um, is w what you're talking about, um, you know, qualitatively different as a result of, of, of algorithms? Or is it just that it's easier to do and cheaper to do things which, which people have done for a long time? I don't think it's very different in, in spirit. I think it is it's going to end up being very different in, in reality because of the kind of privacy um, that is established, the intimacy is, that is established between a person with their phone or the person with their computer. Um, one of the ways I like to think about it is, you know, there was that, this sounds so quaint at this point, given what's been going on in politics, but Mitt Romney during his campaign, he made that famous comment that 47 of the people percent of, of voters are takers. They're never going to vote for me. Um, the reason we know about that is because he was leaked by a guy who was working as a bartender. I, I just want to make the point that no, nobody in the audience leaked that. Um, and, and similarly, you know, nowadays we don't have a bartender in the audience. We have only the audience itself being spoken to directly by the campaign. And so there will never be a leaker because people, when they hear what they want to hear, they don't think it's outrageous. But so a, lot they don't people, to leak. a lot of people 
I'm not saying this is right or not, but you know, the, the, this debate which you've been, uh, which you're talking about, has been going on for a while. Where on the one hand, people say that society is being fragmented as, as never before, echo chambers are being formed. The, mm-hmm. the counter argument that people make is that the echo chambers were always there. There was no way of penetrating them before the internet was created. Um, they were very local sources of information. There was no national, and also that. Um, there was no way of fact-checking and of spreading these things. I mean, the, the Mitt Romney thing is a perfect example of something which went viral and which millions of people um, listened to when it was put up on the internet and then was covered by all the national newspapers. Yeah, I mean, we used to have provincialness, right? We used to have like little towns talking to each other and not talking to outsiders. We don't have that anymore. And that's probably a good thing. We now have sort of the digital equivalent of little towns and they can be pretty scary as, you know, I saw recently in Charlottesville. I'm not, as again, I'm not really claiming this is an entirely new thing. I'm claiming that it is being controlled by powerful people like politicians. And that, that is a scary thing to me. And I think it should be scary to a lot of people. One of the interesting things about the recent American election was in many ways, um, it was powered by what you were talking about, the the sorting into the winners and losers, but that Trump won because he somehow managed to become the the political mobilizer of the losers, the people who felt that they were being left behind, who uh, were the ones who were um, being um, sorted out of existence by all the... (laughs) The, the different algorithms that you're talking about? I don't know if, if people are aware enough of algorithmic influence that they were like, uh, you know, screw the algorithm, I'm voting for Trump. Um, but I will say that, you know, one of the things that we learned with the Trump um, victory was not to trust um, polling. <laughs> and if you will let me, I would like to dance on that grave because I really think that the sort of minute level political polling got really crazy um, and was not useful at all to uh, the concept uh, of an of a informed citizenry, which is, I think, what the goal is before voting. Um, instead of thinking about actual issues and how different people stand on different policies, we just simply were obsessed with how Iowa, you know, Iowa voters were thinking. Um, and I think it was a big distraction, and I hope we never see it again. So if all of these things are as dangerous as you say they are, what can one actually do about it? How can we stop weapons of math destruction actually destroying the world? Well, um, I have a very, um, very direct way of addressing just one part of the political like targeting on Facebook, which is I think that Facebook should be pressured to um, make publicly available all ads that go on Facebook. Um, I got really alarmed at the end of the Trump campaign when one of the campaign managers bragged that they had what they called voter suppression ad campaigns on Facebook, which is to say they had ad campaigns to convince people not to vote. Um, And these campaign ads, I know there was an African-American voter suppression ad. We only hear tell of them. We can't see them. We can't even see if it's real information. And in particular, we can't see whether it identifies itself as a political ad at all, all, because that's not um, a law at least online. It is for television. So I would like to see Facebook open up the ads it's showing to people. Um, More generally, I am calling for a new notion of something that's a sort of systemically important algorithm. Um, And the Facebook newsfeed would certainly be one of them. But so would large-scale, 
hiring algorithms. So any anything that is important enough, being used on important enough on, on enough people, would count as sort of this systemically important algorithm. And those algorithms, once they're given that status, would be under a lot of scrutiny. Now, I just want to make it clear, I'm not asking for every single algorithm to be transparent or open source or something. I don't think that's necessary. But I do think that when you're affecting enough people in important ways, there should be an extra level of scrutiny. And by scrutiny, I mean what I was saying before, like a scientific audit. I'm literally asking for um, the kind of question to be answered that a sociologist would ask of a hiring process. If I send you um, 100 resumes of equally qualified candidates, half of which have men's names and half of which have women's names, are the women being unfairly uh, filtered out by your algorithm? Um, that level of scientific evidence that these algorithms are doing what they're supposed to be doing. But is, this, is it even possible to do this, given that you talked about that quite often it's the underlying data, the data pool that is problematic? So if an algorithm is based on biased data simply because, well, humankind is, is biased and past data is biased, then how is it even possible to build an algorithm on the basis of that that wouldn't be biased? No, I don't think so. You'd have to adjust it. I'm, I'm not saying you can't blithely do it, but you absolutely could adjust it until it passes a, a specific test. So what I'm saying is build the test. Think of it as a tool of, of double checking that your algorithm isn't biased. And how do you deal with the fact that a lot of these algorithms are being held in other countries? So, I mean, it's an international problem as much as a national one. It really is. And I mean, look, I am, I'm no policymaker, but I, I will I'll give you a metaphor that I've been using. And I think it's appropriate. I think of this as a very young industry akin to the industry of cars, which is 100, more than 100 years old. When cars were first manufactured, I'm sure they broke it down a lot. And I'm sure they killed a lot of people for stupid reasons, like their, their tires fell, their wheels fell off. Um, over time, we noticed the problems and we called for higher standards. We regulated it. Um, we have to do the same thing for algorithms. We don't have the laws yet. We don't even know what the standards should be yet. But what I'm saying is we need to start developing those standards. And the first step is acknowledging that these algorithms are flawed and to measure the harm that they are actually causing people. Um, right. I think we need to come to an end soon um, and maybe ask you a final question about the liberal order. Because in a way, what you describe is what I find so fascinating about what you describe is that in a way, on the one hand, what you describe is very much based on the liberal idea on the liberal border because it is so much based on science, um, something liberalism praises itself um, to, to believe in, yet the results of this very sciencey approach to things is highly illiberal, right? Um, it's, it's racist, it's sexist, it's, it's discriminatory, um, all these things. And we don't necessarily, I mean, people that don't look into these things necessarily think of that because they just believe, well, it's an algorithm, it's a computer, hence it's, it's unbiased and, um, and objective. So I think that's, that's an absolutely fascinating element to this debate on the liberal order that, that we've been having. Um, so maybe as a, as a kind of final question, um, what's your view on the liberal order? So how, how would you complete the sentence, uh, the liberal order is? Well, It's, it's hard for me to finish that sentence in, in, in a simple way. Um, 
well, maybe the simplest way of saying it is the liberal order is unprepared for the power inherent in data. Um, I, I don't think we understand what the threat is of the big three companies, Google, Facebook, and Amazon. Um, they're affecting all countries, maybe not in China, in deep ways that we don't understand and haven't been able to measure and haven't been able to uh, protect ourselves against. And it's getting stronger as they collect more and more data. The data itself has power that we don't understand. And going to your point as well, I, I still I kind of refuse to... I refuse to think that this is science gone wrong. Um, instead, I would like to maintain that this is not scientific enough, that we need, we need to build more scientific skepticism into the process of data science. Um, and what we're, the mistake we've made is just assuming it works without testing that it works. We're optimizing to profit and then expecting it to be fair. Why would it be fair just because it's profitable? We actually have to optimize to profit with the constraint that it's fair. We have to decide what fair, fairness means in an algorithm. We have a lot of work to do, but what, that work is scientific work. It's not. It's the opposite of blind faith. I don't think any true scientist just trusts something works without knowing why it works, and that's what I'm calling for. Wow, it's been absolutely fascinating talking to you. Um, there's one last question that I want to ask you, which is sure. if people want to dig deeper into all of this, obviously they should start with weapons of math destruction, how big data increases inequality and threatens democracy, available from all good bookstores, including Amazon. Um, <laughs> but uh, what else should people read? If you had to put a reading list together for people who uh, have been interested by what you said, but want to go a bit deeper. What, what else should be on their list? Um, well, I've been for the last year or so. I've been I've been writing uh, for Bloomberg as well. So Bloomberg.com. If you look for my name, you'll find a bunch of different articles around big data and the more recent recent stuff. But I would also like to urge people to go to ProPublica. They've been doing an incredible job of um, sort of direct audits of algorithms. So they started the conversation around how do you audit what are called crime risk scores. They managed to get all this data from Florida um, and find out that the false positive rate for blacks was twice the false positive rate for whites in this certain cr kind of crime risk score, which is being used in sentencing, which is to say that um, blacks are actually held in prison longer uh, by mistake more often than whites are held in prison longer. So it's fascinating. It's a fascinating subject in its own right. But what I love about their work is that they actually define racism in this context and they show evidence that this algorithm is racist and the conversation's ongoing but it's such a wonderful conversation to have and it's desperately needed so i urge people to go take a look at propublica wonderful okay well thank you very much we'll post links to all of those things on our website and um for now from kathy o'neill mark leonard and Luca franco it's goodbye thanks for listening to this podcast if you've enjoyed it Please do tell people about it through social media and even more importantly, write a review of the podcast on iTunes. In order to encourage you to do this, we have decided to create a special commemorative mug for the End of the World series. And if you write a review, we will, even if it's bad, we will send you an End of the World mug to your address. So please write to me at mark.leonard 
at ecfr.eu with a link to your review and an address to send the mug to and you will have something which will make you the envy of your family and friends and will hopefully enjoy thinking about the podcast uh, every time you have a coffee in the morning. We would like to thank the Finnish Ministry of Foreign Affairs for kindly supporting the research that went into this podcast. Thank you.